Hello, and welcome to the 39th episode of the LI Law Podcast. I am your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live or work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings Counties. Our guest on this 39th episode is Thomas A. O'Rourke, Esquire, an attorney in Melville who concentrates his practice in intellectual property law, namely patent, trade mark and copyright law. Please keep in mind that we will not be providing legal advice to any specific questions. And please check out the show notes for Thomas A. O'Rourke Esquire's credentials and contact information. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hello. How are you today? Okay. So please tell us about yourself, Tom. How did you come to work in intellectual property law? My grandfather was a lawyer, but unfortunately he passed away long before I really had an opportunity to talk to him about his legal practice. When I went to college, I majored in science, particularly chemistry. And I found that when I was looking for a job, when I was in law school, I got a lot more attention from patent lawyers. And so I started off working for a patent firm in Manhattan a number of years ago. And then later when I graduated from law school, I got an offer from a firm out in California. Okay. And could you please explain to our listeners the difference between copyrights, patents, and trademarks? Sure. Patents cover inventions. They cover, you know, new pharmaceutical products, chemical processes, mechanical processes. They cover machines. They can also cover designs, which relate to primarily things that are of an ornamental nature, but they're on or used in conjunction with a functional piece of, a functional product, like let's say a piece of furniture. Copyrights cover more artistic things like music, books, poems, computer programs, dance, movies. Uh, trademarks cover brands like Coca-Cola, and it covers sound, it can cover smell, it can cover visual items, it can cover uh, packaging as well in the trademark area. All of these things are protectable under trademarks. Okay, and what are some tips you would have for an artist or an author who might be wondering if he or she needs to or how to go about copywriting their invention? I would check the Copyright Office's website. Uh, it's at the Library of Congress. They have a wealth of free information there where they can read that and get a lot of information on what types of rights people have in their artistic works. Now, when an artist wants to protect something, we have to look at what it is they want to protect. So, for instance, getting back to books and music and things like that, those are fairly straightforward. One of the things that people have to know about is that a copyright comes into existence when the work is created. So if you write a book or you write a poem, you have a copyright in that original work that you created. Let me ask you a question here. Do you have to record or file that copyright or as soon as you've written it, even without any filing, it's copyrighted? As soon as you wrote it, as soon as you created it, you have a copyright in it. Now there are certain advantages to registering the copyright with the Copyright Office. Some of those things are, one, you get the right to sue somebody for copyright infringement if they have copied your work. 
A second important aspect of it is that you have the right to what are known as statutory damages. Many people go ahead and they have DVDs that they go ahead and watch movies on. You'll see an FBI notice on there, and there'll be some very high penalties for copying the movie. Those are what are known as statutory damages. It doesn't matter in those instances that maybe your use of the movie only costs the company the DVD fee, but it doesn't make it worth their while to come after you for a $30 fee for the DVD. But they're entitled to statutory damages, can, which can be $750 and up for each, each infringement. Okay, well, let, let me ask you a question. When we talk about statutory, that means from a statute that is codified, that's written. And here we're talking about federal law, correct? Correct. All is there the, any New York state law or any other state law? Well, there's something known as common law copyright, but a lot of that has disappeared over the years. Federal law has preempted all of that. So if some, you might see in some of the older cases a discussion of common law copyright. It's very uncommon now. The only probably instance where that might be would be in an unpublished work, maybe something that you know, you didn't go ahead and, and let anybody know about. You might have some common law copyrights in that. But it's not something that, because the, the U.S. statute is so all-encompassing, you don't need to rely on any state law in any of this. Okay, so if I buy a DVD or I go to my library and I check out a DVD and I invite a whole group of friends to come see a movie, does it matter if I charge them or not, if I am uh, liable for copyright infringement? Well, it depends on the reason why you're having everybody over there. If you're there to collect money from showing that movie, you're going to have a copyright infringement there. If it's just you're having people over because they're friends and you're going to watch, you know, Gone with the Wind in an evening, no, that's not copyright infringement because it's home use. You're not making any money off of it or anything like that. Okay. How long does a copyright last? Now, that's a interesting question because there are all different terms for copyrights depending on when the work was created. If a work is created right now, it's typically for the life of the author plus 70 years, which is a significant period of time. Now, there are also what are known as works made for hire. So, for example, if you have an employee and that employee comes up with an advertising slogan for you, a, a song, say, and you have that person as a W-2 employee, that would be a work made for hire, typically, and then the term would be significantly more than just the 75 years. You don't take the, into consideration the life of the person. It's for unpublished works, it's 120 years. For published works, it's 95 years. Okay, and in the case of an employee who creates this uh, invention, does the invention belong to the employee or does it belong to the employer? Well, it depends on whether or not the employee was hired or as part of their duties to come up with this. So, for instance, if you work in an advertising agency and it's your job to come up with slogans for people or you're coming up with a uh, advertising program where you're taking pictures and things like that, typically the employer would own that work. 
and you would not have any rights to that because that's what your salary's for. One of my favorite movies is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And my understanding of why that movie came to be associated with showing on TV every year was that there was no copyright or that the copyright had expired so that the major stations did not have to pay a fee, a royalty fee each time. What happens after the copyright expires, whether the 70 years, 120 years, whatever it is? Well, It's a Wonderful Life is an interesting story in the copyright area. At the time that work was created, and I think it was 1946, the copyright statute had a 28-year term, and you could renew it for an additional 28-year term. So when that copyright was up after the initial term, whoever owned the rights, whether it was Frank Capra or the studio, they did not think that there was any value in continuing that, or they may have missed the date. All of a sudden, as soon as people found out that the copyright had expired and was not renewed, television stations recognized that they didn't have to pay a fee to have that shown. So they would blanket the airwaves with that throughout the holiday season, and they did that for many years. But if you notice, it is no longer shown as frequently as it was in the past. And there's a reason for that. One of the rights you get with a copyright is that you have the right to make copies of your work and to the exclusion of others. But you also have the right to what's known as to make derivative works. And the movie It's a Wonderful Life was based on a short story which was really in the form of a Christmas card that was done by someone in, I believe, 1943, and he sent it out to a number of his friends. And it was uh, this basic idea behind the movie. So the movie is actually a derivative work of the copyright that was in that Christmas card. And interestingly, the person who had the rights to the Christmas card kept that copyright in effect, and they were able to go ahead and take the position that the copyright in the movie, while it had expired, because it was based on a work that still had the rights in extant, that they could stop people from making money off of the movie. So now it's only shown a few times each holiday season. So Tom, what is protected by a copyright? In the area of copyright law, what's protected is the expression of a work, not the idea behind the work. So for instance, if you wanted to protect a movie, let's say, or a book, the copyright will protect you from people going ahead and making copies of that book. But it will not protect you from the general theme of a story. So, for example, if you like the movie Gone with the Wind, you know, it's a Civil War love story. You don't have exclusive rights to Civil War love stories based on you writing that book. When Margaret Mitchell wrote that story, you know, she didn't exclude anybody else from going ahead and writing that type of love story. But what she does have is, and we talked about it before, was that derivative work right to the story. So that would prevent people from doing a sequel to that. 
using the characters for something else. So it, it you know, even though it doesn't cover the the idea behind the story, the, the very broad general idea behind the story, it does give a significant rights to protect the characters down the road. What happens if someone would write a sequel to that story? What are the rights of the initial creator of the story? Okay, this is complicated because in one instance that person would be an infringer. But in a second instance, it would still have a copyright in the underlying story that he or she wrote because that's still a new creative work. Because it's dependent on the other one, they would have trouble going ahead and selling that. But they would have rights if somebody copied that and then knocked them off, they would have rights as would the owner of the copyright to go on with the wind. Okay. I have a, a question for you about songs. There's a certain group that I like called, it's actually called Schlockrock, and they take songs, whether Beatles songs or other songs, and ch keep the melody, but they change the words. And I understand that the copyright is to this group, plus Paul and John and, and whoever from the Beatles. How does that work when you use part of what someone else has created, but then you give it your own creative spin? Well, in the song area, there are certain compulsory licenses that are available to you. So that's why you can see an artist, you know, who will go ahead and, and sing the Beach Boys song, California Girls, and then come out with his own version of that. Music has a lot of ways you can protect the copyright. So, for instance, the songwriter... The person who wrote the lyrics has a copyright in the lyrics. The person who wrote the music has a copyright in the music. The person who played the song would have a copyright in the performance. Mm. And, you know, typically you're able to go ahead and get a license to use the music or the lyrics to a song. And as long as you pay that license fee to ASCAP or BMI or whoever then you're entitled to do what you want to do with it. Do you also have to pay royalties if you're if you get money from your creative reinvention of the song? Well, if if you're using let's say California Girls and you get a license, you would keep the money that you made from the song, but you would have to pay a license fee to the owner of the lyrics, the owner of the music, and anybody else that had any rights to that. So, for instance, if you go to the movies these days and you like to read the credits at the end of the movies, there's a, a thing there where they usually have somebody who gets the rights to different things. So, for instance, you go ahead and, and let's say American Graffiti, for instance. You know, somebody had to get the rights to all those songs that are in that movie. And one of the reasons why you don't see any of the Elvis Presley songs in that movie was because the owner of the copyright wanted too much money for that, and it didn't fit into the budget for the film. That was a very low-budget film. They checked with other song owners, and they found that there were a fair number of them who were willing to go and take the low fee that they were offered for that and that's why those songs are in the movie tom is there anything else you would like to tell our listeners yes uh it there's a common misconception out there that if something is on the internet it's free to use by anybody 
And that's not true. And people can get into a lot of trouble. They can get sued for infringement if they go ahead and they take a picture that they found on the Internet. They put it on their website or they put it on their brochure. They go ahead and they use music from the Internet You can and you download it. Uh, if you go to some of those uh, sites like Torrent and, and things like that and download movies, you can get into a lot of trouble with that. And it, you have to be very careful. You have to respect the owner of the copyright's rights to this, or you can get into a very expensive piece of litigation. And if anybody has any questions or would like to raise in any issues with me, I'd be happy to talk to you. I don't charge for the initial consultation. Uh, and feel free to reach out for me. And Tom O'Rourke's contact information is in the show notes, so please take a look. And that's it for our 39th episode. Thank you so much, Tom O'Rourke, for coming on the podcast today and for a very entertaining episode. And to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are there, please rate us with a review that might start. I just heard on the LA Law podcast that Long Island enrolls 17% of all New York State school children, but only receives 12% of state educational funding. While the state school aid package must be finalized by April 1st, Governor Cuomo is signaling that Long Island will receive a smaller hike in school aid this year than provided last year due to state budget constraints. In the past, Long Island has received a smaller share due to the region's relative wealth as compared with other sections of the state. However, increasingly, Nassau and Suffolk counties count among their student bodies students speaking limited English, as well as those requiring additional assistance and families of lower means. The LI Law Podcast lets you know what's going on on Long Island and is your podcast for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.